introduce a new sermon series. I don't think you'll forget the name of this series, okay? It's Hey Jude. And the simplicity of it, we could have gone a lot of different ways, but it just made sense. And with that intro, as pretty as it was, uh, it introduces us to a tiny little book called Jude. If you go to the first chapter of Revelation and you turn back one page, you'll find the book of Jude. And so if you got your Bibles, go ahead and go there. Um, one chapter is all it is, and, and uh, it's 25 verses. My Bible, it covers one page and the very tip top of the next page. We're going to look at the first two verses this morning and introduce who Jude is. You might learn something new about who the man Jude is uh, as well. I'm going to be gone next week. Uh, Jennifer and I are uh, going to be leaving um, Friday. Uh, we'll be on Friday through Friday. Brother Ben's going to preach uh, verses 3 and 4 next week. Uh, it's talking about contending or fighting for the faith. And so please be here uh, for that. But uh, my brother and, and sister-in-law are uh, being stationed from Virginia Beach to uh, Millington, Tennessee, uh, just north of Memphis, to a base there for the next couple of years. And we're going to help them move. So I won't be around uh, much of, I'll be here this week, but the week after I won't be around. So you need something called the office, called Brother Ben. Uh, we'll get you taken care of. Um, read the first two verses with me. Now, it's not wrong to say Jude 1, 1 and 2, or just to say Jude 1 and 2. Either way is fine because it's a single chapter uh, letter. He says Jude, he's self-identifying himself here. A servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. We just studied James. So I want you to put two and two together here. If James is the brother of Jesus and Jude is James's brother, who is Jude? He's Jesus's brother as well, but a lot of people don't know that. In some translations, he's called Judas five times in the New Testament. There's somebody introduced as a Judas, uh, not necessarily Judas Iscariot. Uh, he is one of those, but this is Jude. I love how he introduces himself, first and foremost, not as the brother of Jesus. He could claim that, but he says, I'm a servant of Jesus, and I'm the brother of James. He says, this is letter is written to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that the words of Jude penned uh, all those years ago, uh, would affect this church today. Lord, that it would reach into our souls, that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work, and that we would remember whose we are, to whom we belong, what we are as believers, that even in the face of uh, just constant turmoil, of darkness, of ugliness, of fighting, of racism, of uh, political just, uh, just terribleness, Lord God, in our world today, that we are the light of the world, that we who sit here, that we who may be at home this morning, and even those without computers that are worshiping the one true God, not just in this city, but around the world. God, that we would lighten uh, the world, that we would show people the way to Jesus, that we would speak not of, uh, of things that are gloom and doom, but of hope and the good news of Christ. God, we pray that Jude would reveal that, that he'd shine a light on it in our hearts today, that we would get it and that we would share it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, <clears throat> Just to begin with, we already said this, but I want to give you just a tiny bit of introduction to this letter uh, so that we can uh, take the rest of it in and understand what we're doing. You get the background, the, the, the foundations of the book, and I think a lot of times it helps us to understand what he's actually talking about. And so Jude is identifying himself, first of all, as the author of this letter. 
Uh, he's the half-brother of Jesus, but out of humility, he only refers to himself as a servant of Christ and the, the brother of James. Uh, Jude references in this short little book a lot of Jewish history. His audience are Jewish Christians, Jews who have uh, come out of Judaism and who have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he identifies those believers, even in verse 1. He, we know he's talking to believers because look who he's talking about there. He says, to those who are called, to those who are loved by God the Father, and to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he also calls his audience, we're not going to get there so far this morning, but he calls them dear friends. And so there's intimacy in this. It's almost like a pastoral heart for the people that he is speaking to. And so not only was this letter written to an early church somewhere in Jerusalem, it may have been the Jerusalem church, it may have been a home church, uh, it may have been spread, and it likely was a circular letter that was spread to multiple churches, but it's good for us today as the church as well. God's preserved it and kept it in the canon of Scripture, so we have it. Um, but he's writing a lot, and, and this is good for us to know, about the end times, the end of the church age. And as believers, we're encouraged, the Bible word is admonished, to contend for the t faith in a time where there are tares or weeds amongst the wheat. Satan's busy uh, going out there in the harvest and trying to, to tear up the crop. Uh, there are uh, many false prophets running rampant today. Uh, people are falling away from the church. There's a word for that. It's called apostasy, apostates. They're falling away from the faith. And saints are in danger. Uh, I saw yesterday where there was a man holding a sign talking about Christ and how all lives matter, and he was murdered for that, and he was a, a man of color. Uh, so we also know that evil is no respecter of persons. But in the church today, more and more people are falling away. This is my fear, okay, that as the times have gotten easier to blend in to church and to not have any hand on the plow in church. And as we have been scared away from church, and rightfully so for many reasons, especially for sickness, but my fear is this, that many will fall away during these times. I don't, I don't want it to be so, but I'm afraid uh, at some point that sheep and goats are going to start being uh, separated into their different pens. The end times reveal that uh, many will fall away from the faith, that they'll stop uh, worshiping Christ. Guys, it is imperative that we stay the course, that we remain faithful, that we don't use the fact that we could stay at home and watch from television, some have to, and thank God that we have this av availability and technology, but that we don't use it as an excuse to stop worshiping and serving the Lord. Because right now it could happen, and it is happening. There are mega churches around us, some of the largest churches in Arkansas and in the South right now that are having a terrible time getting members to return. When will this end? We don't know. So what are folks doing? We don't know. Maybe they're faithfully worshiping. Maybe they're faithfully serving. Maybe they're faithfully praying and sharing the gospel. That's our prayer. But we really don't have any ability to put uh, uh, something down and say, hey, the people that aren't with us, are they worshiping also? So we've got to be careful in this. And I think this is some of what Jude is talking about because he will start talking about apostasy and people falling away. We don't know the exact date. Maybe you have a, uh, a study Bible that talks about it, and uh, sometimes it's difficult to relay dates. Um, 
it was obviously written during Jude's lifetime. He had to be alive to write it. Uh, we know that uh, after Jesus died, somewhere around 33 AD, that the day of Pentecost happened shortly thereafter, and that the church really exploded and began to, uh, to, to work and function in the way that Christ had prepared it to be. There had to be some time for these heresies, for these lies and false teaching to creep into the church. And so a, a safe date is AD 65. To, to place the date of this letter. Some put it as late as AD 80, uh, which is fine as well. But uh, that's about the time that the letter was written, about 30 to 45 years after Jesus' death, roughly. So you get a time frame there, three to four and a half decades later. False teachers had mixed into the church, and Jude wanted to identify them. He was telling his readers, he said, false teaching is heresy. It leads to wicked living. When it's unchecked, when nobody stands up to it, it will lead many people astray, including believers. And so it's vital for us as believers to know truth from error. Listen, I heard this, my, pre, my pastor Sid Ree preached this years ago. He said, uh, when, when those who are examining counterfeit bills, you've probably heard this before as well, in the U.S. Treasury Department, they don't take all of the fake bills and they don't look at them and examine them to see if this one's real. They take the real thing, the genuine article, and they study it, every point, every dot, every tittle on it, and then immediately they can tell the false things, right? Well, it's good for us to look at the real thing, the Word of God, to be in it, because when we know the Word, we are much better at discerning what is not the Word. When somebody's trying to fill you up with something that's a bunch of baloney, you know better. And so this is what Jude is trying to teach here. He's teaching the difference between false teaching, which leads to ungodliness, and the truth of God's word, which leads us to righteousness. He also warns us about rebelling against God's ordained authorities. You'll see all of this stuff in here. He's saying that when there was an elder or bishop in the church, that those who went against them, they were being faithful to their, their calling or to a missionary. He said that, uh, in other words, it is... Uh, as though you are rebelling against God himself when you rebel against the authority of the one God has put in place. He wanted believers to stand up and fight for the truth, to believe and teach the truth, and to live it out. And those are all important for us today, guys. It's one thing to hear the word or to believe something. It's another thing to actually act on it. And so that's vital. Just as his brother James has said, faith without works is dead. And so here we are. Two points this morning. Uh, I, I, do you have the next slide up there? One day I'm going to get a clicker so I can do this myself. Here's a breakdown of uh, this sermon, okay? Know who you are in Christ. There's going to be four points to this. You're purchased, you're called, you're loved, and you're protected. And we could say amen to all of those. Number two, know what you have from Christ. We don't just have mercy, peace, and love. We have an abundance of it, and we're called to enjoy it. So enjoy abundant mercy, enjoy abundant peace, enjoy abundant love. Uh, I mentioned this, that there's five different Judes that are mentioned in the New Testament, but this Jude is actually making his identity clear. This is point one. He's a slave. The title of this sermon is Happy to be a Slave. Listen, guys, I know that with the parameters that we have, we place everything into American slavery. That the African, the Indian, the whomever was taken from uh, their home country and that were brought here during the slave trade, it's such a black mark, a horrible time in human history. But we, we, we place everything about being a slave within the confines of American slavery. Slavery has existed since 
the beginning of time. And it has involved every color, culture, creed, and race of people imaginable. Anytime where sin exists in a human heart, and it's always existed, one person will seek to make another subservient to him. One will seek that another is of lesser value. One will put them to work for them so that they can gain off of their sweat and off of their blood. And so, guys, I want you to think about this. We're not talking, when I say happy to be a slave, lest anybody infer the wrong meaning. We're talking about becoming a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul bragged about that. James bragged about that. Peter bragged about that. Jude brags about that, that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. The word here is the word doulos, and it literally means to be a bond servant of a master. And underneath the mastership of God Almighty, the lordship of the king, we have every blessing given to us that heaven can afford. We have every great grace and mercy provided for us. And so we should be able to, if we understand what the word says, say we're happy to be slaves of King Jesus, the king of kings. Um, we know that, oh, by the way, if you want to see the, the lineage of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, Matthew 13, verse 44 is a place that you might jot down in your notes. Uh, it says we don't know how many sisters Jesus had, but he had a brother named James, a brother named Joseph, a brother named Simon, and a brother named Judas, or Jude, as we know it. We know that he had four brothers. Uh, the crazy thing about Jude is, along with the rest of his brothers and sisters and family, uh, they really believed that Jesus was mentally unstable during his earthly life. I mean, I can't imagine uh, being the kid that grows up with the perfect brother. Poor Kyle, my younger brother, it got as close to that as possible, right? Um, not, okay? But I can't imagine being uh, one of the brothers or sisters of Jesus. By the way, they're all younger than Jesus, right? Okay? The perpetual virginity of Mary is a false heresy that's taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Mary had other children, but only one of them was of the Holy Spirit, and that was Jesus Christ. The rest, their daddy was named Joseph, okay? Uh, just to clarify a couple of things. Um, in Mark three twenty one, uh, Mark is saying that the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the family of Jesus, believed Jesus to be out of his mind, mentally unstable. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. Now Jude is glad. I mean, he's pronouncing it from the rooftops that his brother is the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior. He's radically submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. So much so that he once was probably embarrassed of the claims his brother made. Now he's ready to lay his life down for those same claims. And that's something that the Holy Spirit had to work in his life. One of the first blessings of knowing who we are in Christ. And by the way, guys... To know who you truly are, you can have the world tell you that you're pretty, that you're good at baseball, that you're smart, that you're something else, that you're, uh, and they can tell you the bad things about yourself as well. But to know who we truly are, to find our truest identity, we have to know whose we are first. And if you understand that you belong, that you're a son or daughter of the great king of kings, the lord of lords, the creator of all, it changes your perception of how you view your own self. That your life was worth dying for. That your life was worth redeeming. That you are worth walking with and watching over every day. That you are protected and kept at peace with God. That you are made into an image bearer. That you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That all that was his is yours in faith. That one day 
day when you pass from this life that you will inherit glory, that you will be given a perfected, perfect body. And who knows how good that's going to look if this one right now, Ben, looks as good as it does, right? I mean, it's going to be great for us, y'all. No more aches, no more pains, no more crying, no more tears. Glory awaits us. And all of that is because of whose we are. And so you can say the next time somebody asks you, who are you? I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the King of Kings. And he's afforded me every glory and grace that this world could ever hope to provide. Man, it's wonderful to know who you are in Jesus. One of the things you need to know is that you are purchased. This slide up here talks about uh, being a bondservant or a slave. Dulos, we talked about that word of Christ. And literally in verse 1, Jude is saying, Jude, a servant... He says, this is my name, this is what I am, and this is whose I am. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. It's put there in that order, grammatically structured for a, a reason. Because, look, it's stated first to emphasize that's his truest identity. Before I'm a Baptist, before I'm an Arkansan, before I'm a Razorback fan, before I'm anything else that's less than that, and there's not a lot, well, he wants us to know that we are first and foremost sons and daughters of of God. It's not a brother to a brother, but a slave to a master. And so uh, this humility in Jude, as he begins to just talk about who he is, he's short, concise, and to the point. But what an honor to be a slave to the king of kings. I could imagine if Jude was preaching this message to us this morning, he could tell us so many insights of where he once stood, haughty and thinking that he was better than or, or more in control of his mental faculties than his older brother. But now he looks and sees the true glory of the king of kings that's seated at the right hand of God. Probably Jude was one of those that was standing atop the mountain when he saw Jesus ascend into heaven and heard the angels say, Why seek ye the living? Not just at the resurrection day, but on that day, this same Jesus who has been ascending is ascending before you will one day come again. First Corinthians six twenty tells us as believers that we were bought with a price, and First Peter one nineteen tells us that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own; we belong to Him. He is our purchaser and our redeemer. You are not your own; therefore, honor God with your bodies. Do you not know this? Scripture asks us rhetorically that we belong to him. He is our master. We are the servant, the slave, the child, the one who looks to him for everything. Not only are you first and foremost purchased, but he says you're also called. Verse 1 says, to those who are called, he's writing this letter. And it doesn't mean invited. It means the effectual calling of God that opens the heart to freely respond to the gospel. And I've, I've put this up here so that you wouldn't misunderstand me. I'm not preaching Calvinistic preaching here this morning. I'm preaching exactly what the Bible says. Romans 8.30, 8.30 speaks to the effectual calling, stating, And to those whom he predestined, God knew who you were before you were placed in your mother's womb. He knows the end of your life. Don't you think that before it all began, he even knew if you would trust him during this life? He knows whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before we're even born. Because he knows eternity from eternity. That's our God. It's mind-blowing to us, but he gets it. He's a God that exists outside of time and space. He knows what tomorrow holds for you and I. He knows what the end of our lives look like. It says, to those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those whom he called, he also justified. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a great mystery to faith. We don't truly understand all the things of God, nor should we, nor could we. If we could understand the mind of God, he would cease to be God. He would be like one of us. But this sovereign God effectually brings men and women, boys and girls, to salvation in perfect harmony with our own free will. We all have the choice to choose and decide whether we're going to trust him or deny him, whether we're going to grieve the Spirit or honor the Spirit with our lives. And so God is the one who does this. Um, And I would say this too, guys. We do not respond to salvation apart from the drawing of God's Spirit. If you're going to be saved, it's going to be because God created you, God provided the covering in Jesus, the the salvation of him. God gives the Holy Spirit to draw you to himself, and then God actually saves you. And then God keeps you, and then God glorifies you. And it's all this work of God. We just respond when the Spirit draws by faith. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I trust. Yes, Lord, I confess my sin. Yes, Lord, I call out to you because I believe that you are the Savior of all mankind, and I want to be saved as well. We're responding to what God is calling. This mystery is something difficult to grasp, but we respond in faith. Timothy George once said, he wrote a book called Amazing Grace, this Christian author. He said, God, listen to this, God created human beings with free moral agency. That's free will. We can each make our own choices. And he does not violate this even in the supernatural work of regeneration or saving souls. Christ does not rudely bludgeon his way into the human heart. He does not abrogate or violate our creaturely freedoms. No, this Christ beckons and woos He pleads and pursues. He waits and he wins. And that's true. Brother Ben, I don't know how you wooed and pursued Miss June, all right? But you did a good job. Cody, I I know y'all just had anniversary. I don't know how you wooed and pursued Kendra, but you did a really good job. I know this. If I had said to this one right here on the front row, woman, we're going out. That's not wooing and pursuing, all right? There's not a demand in there. I don't come to her door and beat the door off the hinges and say, this is a date, whether you like it or not. God doesn't do that to us, guys. He pursues us with love. He brings compassion and grace and mercy, and he lays it down before us, and he offers it to us, and he offers it time and again. He lets his spirit work um, with our own spirit in mind so that there is an agreement. It's not against our will. It's with our will. It's not his will superseding, even though he's in control. He allows us to respond, and there's a beauty in that because when somebody woos and pursues, there is a response That is real, true love. It's not forced. It's wanted. This leads to the third point of uh, point one. You are loved. Jude says you're loved by God the Father. Now there's a sense in which God loves all people indiscriminately. Everybody made is his creation. And he loves them. He doesn't hate anything that he created. He loves his creation. But there is a special sense in which he loves his children. It's very much the difference. Um, In 
me loving my friends versus me loving my wife and my sons. I love Ben Rao. I say that freely. I love June Rao. I love Karen and Lowell Maloney. I love Monica and Mike Jimenez. I love TJ Polk. I love Danny and Sissy DeWoody. I love. But when it comes, and I would do so much to prove that love, but when it comes to Jennifer Matthews and Sperry Matthews and Declan Matthews, there is a special intensity of love to which I will gladly, in a heartbeat, lay my life down so that they can be protected and live. And that is the love of God for his children. He loves this world. He keeps providing the, the early rains and the late rains for them. He keeps causing the same sun to shine on all of us, whether we curse him or whether we praise him. But he loves his children. And that love can never be removed. His love as our father is permanent and it's perfect. It's not based on feeling, therefore it's not fleeting or conditional. He doesn't fall in and out of love with us. God will never divorce you. God's love is unconditional, meaning that if you screw up royally one day, he still loves you just the same. Or if you do something so amazing that it makes the headlines of the paper, he still loves you the same. You can do nothing to make God love you more, and you can do nothing to make God love you less. As 1 John 4.10 beautifully puts it, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement, the sacrifice for our sins. But don't miss what the very next verse in 1 John 4 says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This love isn't just for you, even though it is for you. It's also to be shared. The same way God gives you that love, he expects you as his image bearer, as his child, to love other people the same way. The last point is this. You are protected. I love this, especially as a man. I want so badly as, as one of my roles as a father and husband to be able to protect my family. And I do that, and I, I hope that I do that well. But he says in this verse that we're kept for Jesus Christ. This is the word preserved. And if you'll bear with me for just a tiny little Greek lesson, it's in the perfect tense. I know for maybe some English teachers that means something, all right? For the rest of us dodos, in perfect tense doesn't mean nothing, all right? And I'm one of those. I had to look this up to study it. Why perfect tense matters here when he says we're kept in Jesus? It shows us that it's a settled reality, a foregone conclusion, that we are kept by God and preserved both past, present, and future, ongoing. Nothing can strip you or snatch you out of your Father's hands. He's got you, and he'll keep you forever. There are so many people that have such a problem with the doctrinal belief that we believe once saved, always saved. And here's what I would say. If I only refer to it as my salvation, if I worked my way into it, or if it's just about me saying a prayer, then I could lose that. But it's God's salvation. Look at what King David said in Psalm 51. He says, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he says there in Psalm 51. God's salvation, what God has created, what God has brought together, God will not lose, he will not forget, he will not let it idly fall apart. He's got your salvation. And you want to know one of the greatest proofs to this? You are sealed with his spirit unto the day of redemption. His spirit ain't leaking out of you guys. He's got us. 
were forever his. There are people that walk away from the faith, and here's a simple explanation for that. If you're an apostate and you say right now, five years after you profess to be a Christian, that you say, I don't believe in God, I'm not saved, I hate the church, God's not for real, blah, 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 blah. The truth is you were never saved to begin with. That's the truth of the matter. And so when we say we're protected by God, not only is our salvation protected, but we're protected and preserved as well. Jude uses the word kept five times in this tiny little letter. You're kept safe in your salvation by Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 7.25 links your security to the intercessory prayer ministry of Jesus. The same Jesus who is right now at the right hand of the Father praying for you is praying for his own. He wouldn't be praying for you if you didn't belong to him. Jude 24 says that he, God, will keep us from stumbling and will present us to the Father as faultless and blameless. That he, Jesus, I should have said. Ephesians 4.30 is that verse I quoted, you are sealed unto the day of redemption. It's so important to understand how clear God's word makes this idea of eternal security. This is God's witness. This is God's promise to you that he will not lose you out of his hand. By his works on earth, Jesus obtained your salvation. By his work in heaven, Jesus maintains your salvation. God is preserving us for glory, dear saint. What a God we have. Finish this last point real quickly. Y'all laugh that point but here's the deal the second part of this is to know what you have from christ jude has this funny thing for threes for triplets when he's talking here in verse and he first of all says in verse one that we're called that we're loved and that we're preserved then in verse two he says that he's praying for us for something what's he praying for for mercy peace and love to be multiplied and increased he wants each one of us to be not just recipients of this, but guys, there should be a wet spot under us from what's pouring out and overflowing over the top. Literally, the grace, it doesn't stop here. It keeps coming out. And whoever comes in contact with you, whoever's in your general vicinity, vicinity is getting grace. They're getting mercy. They're getting loved on because God is working through you. He doesn't fill you up right here. He keeps on with the pitcher flowing so that it's continually coming out of you so that you look like him. And he says, first of all, that we're to enjoy abundant mercy. Listen, guys, mercy is a word that we use a lot. Sometimes we interchange it or interpose it with grace. Mercy is used all throughout the New Testament, but it is a characteristic, an attribute of God and who he is. It's the same characteristic that moves God, your father, to seek a relationship with people who have no right, no claim, no stake, no ability have a relationship with him at all. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, that we're vile, that even our best is as filthy rags before the Lord. Those type of people don't get to say, you're mine, God, I'm yours. We don't get that. We don't get to do that on our own. Brother Randy prayed a beautiful prayer earlier that very much espoused that idea. It's we don't get to come before God without his permission, without his allowing, without his drawing us. And so here's this beautiful thought. Mercy speaks of compassion. It speaks of loving kindness. It's gracious, undeserved, and unmerited, which means you didn't do anything to get God's mercy. He chose to give it to you. But it's not blind. God isn't ignorant. God isn't stupid. God isn't blind. He chooses to give this to you even though you and I don't deserve it. Mercy is what moves God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
the simplest definition, explanations of grace and mercy that were ever given to me. I was a teenager when I heard this, and it's stuck with me ever since. But grace, giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy, not giving us what we do deserve. Grace, giving us what we don't deserve. You don't deserve salvation. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve glory. You don't deserve uh, bodies that are perfected in every sense of the word. Mercy, not giving you what you do deserve. You deserve hell. You deserve punishment. You deserve separation from God. You deserve making it on your own in the world. God gives us grace and mercy. That's the beautiful thing that he's afforded us in Christ. In Romans 9.23, those who trust Jesus are called vessels of mercy. Right now, we're vessels of mercy. In Matthew 5.7, the Beatitudes, the merciful are told they will receive mercy. In Jude 21, we're told to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 22, we're admonished to extend the same mercy to those who doubt. Verse 23, we're to extend that mercy further to those who have been defiled and devastated by sin. In other words, as we receive mercy from God, we're to be mercy givers. Whether a person doubts, whether they are defiled by sin, whether they are filthy in their sin, whether they are caught in the act of adultery, Jesus extends mercy. Or whether they're devastated by sin and they've lost everything because of consequences in life from bad decisions, still extend the mercy of God. This mercy has compassion for others, and it jumps into action. At great cost to himself, uh, to ourselves, it sacrifices, I love this. Um, go, hold on. Go to the next slide, if you got it. You may not. I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. Here it is. Mercy sacrifices in order to save. I could have told one of my kids, and I did. I took him for a walk yesterday. One of them's on his little scooter. The other one's on his big wheel, if y'all know what those are. And I can't keep up with them. And I keep telling them, get on the sidewalk. Stay out of the street. Get on the sidewalk. Stay out of the street. People in our neighborhood hear this four-year-old hollering at the two-year-old that's going faster than him. Declan, slow down. Slow down. I'm like, be quiet. Everybody in the neighborhood can hear you. The two-year-old on a scooter is just as fast as he can down the street. And I'm like, Declan, slow down. Lo and behold, what do they do? We're safe and clear. No cars have come in our neighborhood. But you don't know this. All right, I'm... A minivan comes around the corner, puts on their brakes. Declan's right there in the middle of the road. I'm turned around trying to get Sperry to come on because he's upset because he's getting beat by his brother. And I see this one. I said, Declan, scoot over. That car is understanding. They're waving and smiling, but they're not moving. And I said, Declan, get on the sidewalk. Climbs up on the sidewalk. They're still not moving because they don't trust him. They already saw how reckless the kid was. So Declan, get on the grass and sit down. Finally, the car moves, okay, because they see that it's not going to happen. Well, here's the deal. Um, my little boy, who had been told numerous times, deserved to get in trouble for his actions. It could have been far worse for him and me and us should something have happened because he didn't heed 
the warnings that were given to him. But instead of that, do you know what I did? As soon as that car passed, I ran over and I hugged him. And I said, baby, that's why I said stay over here on the sidewalk. Because I want you to be safe. Man, God is telling us that all the time. And he's so, so far infinitely more perfect and loving than I am. But your God is giving you warnings for your own safety and protection. He's saying, don't do that. Don't watch that. Don't be there. Don't listen to that. Don't believe that. And then we do. And then we're like, God, forgive me. I, I did mess up. I didn't listen. And God says, you know what? I'll forgive you. And I still love you. Just the same as I did before. Mercy. Mercy. God also wants us to enjoy peace. Peace has this idea of wholeness and completion, of prosperity and success. Judges 6.24, God is called Jehovah Shalom, the Hebrew word shalom for peace. God is the very source of peace. He is the center of peace. He is the uh, everything of peace. If there's no peace in your life, do you know why? It's because there is no seeking of God. There is no presence of God. Do you want to know why the world's at unrest and why it will continue to be? Because in so many places, in so many ways, it's godless. It's forsaken God, and we lack peace. Isaiah 9, 6, 7 calls God's Messiah, the Prince of Peace. And when God gives you salvation, he makes peace between you and himself. You're no longer an enemy at war with God. He's made you his own. And he's brought with it everything that those who have won the war, the victors, could possibly be gifted. I want to tell you this without having to go into all of it, but you have an external peace when you belong to God. He protects you. He looks out for you. He warns you. He gives you discernment. He gives you sense and premonition from the Holy Spirit. You also have an internal peace with God when Jesus is your Lord and Savior. What's even more beautiful than the external and the internal is an eternal peace that the Lord gives you, that we have heaven awaiting us, and that heaven is fighting for us as believers today. The final point this morning is this, that we can enjoy abundant love. Jude keeps reminding us of just how loved by God we are. The same God who is holy, who's spirit, who is light, who's a consuming fire, is also love. A lot of people quote this verse, misquote this verse. They cherry pick this verse and they say, you know what? I can live however I want to. I can do whatever I want to. I don't have to trust God. I don't have to assemble together with believers. I don't need to read the word. I never need to pray. I can do and think whatever I want to because I know in the end, God is love and he's going to accept me. Wrong. Part of God's love is perfect justice. And part of God's justice means that if you haven't trusted and believed in his son for the covering of your sins, that you will be separated from him for all eternity. Not something the world wants to hear, but something the world needs to hear. Something we need to hear. Because guys, there is damnation that awaits those who neglect Jesus as Savior. And we need to be urgently telling them, you don't have to go that direction. You don't have to be hurt that way. You don't have to die in your sins and be separated from God in a real place called hell. Because it's all available to us right now. Enjoy abundant love. 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, 
and God abides in him. To say that God is love affirms he always desires and seeks your greatest good, even at great sacrifice to himself. One more quote from a theologian, C.H. Dodd, wrote a small book called Epistles. C.H. Dodd says, To say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. In John 17, 23, we're told that as the Father has loved the Son, so he has also loved us. In Romans 8, 31 to 39, not going to read all that, but it says, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul reminds us that because love is at the very center of who God is, it will never fail. It will never end because God can never fail and has no ending. Listen, guys, we live in a strange time, a scary time to be a believer, scary time to raise children, a scary time just to exist. In this little letter, you can take it home and read it today, and probably you may have read it just now. You can read the whole thing in probably 15 minutes. Jude is equipping us and preparing us for some of the challenges that we as Christians face living in a day like today, in which I believe are the last days. You must be on guard for false doctrines. means that when you turn on uh, whatever the Trinity Broadcasting Network is, there's some good and there's some crazy on there, okay? Be careful what you're putting into your heart and your head. Um, you have to be aware of false doctrines because they will deceive you and pull you away. If you're not in the Word... Guys, any of us can fall victim to Satan if we're not reading and studying and meditating and hiding God's word in our hearts. You have to know the gospel. It's worth protecting. It's worth defending. We have to fall under the lordship of Jesus. Genuine faith acts, talks, and gives like Jesus. Our life in Christ should be putting faith into practice. It means that if we truly believe that the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal, that when it's our chance... When we're put over something and we have the opportunity to steal, we don't do it. When it says don't talk or gossip, that we don't use our words to stab somebody in the back. So many other ways. We have an intimate relationship with Jesus provided for us. And guys, I want you and me to know our shepherd's voice so well. That when anybody else calls to us, we instantly know that's not my master. My master wouldn't lead me that way. And we follow after him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the beautiful worship, for the prayers of faith, for the allowance of us as saints assembling together to receive and to read and to meditate upon your holy word. Thank you, Father, that we can call ourselves slaves of King Jesus that we belong to the King of Kings, that he has purchased us and he's called us, God. Thank you, Father, that you love us the way you do, that you protect us and defend us the way you do. Thank you, Father, that you shower us with mercy and bless us with peace. God, because we are yours this morning, we can gladly proclaim that we have internal security, that we have external security knowing that your hand is upon us and that we have eternal security. Father, I pray 
that as your beloved, that we would rejoice, that we would never be ashamed of you. That when somebody asks about the faith that is within us, we'd be ready with an answer. I'm a child of the King. He's taken my sin and forgiven me. He's made me what I was into what I am and will be in Jesus. He's taken this life and provided not just life insurance, but an eternity in his presence. He's taken the worst of me, and he loved me still and made me like his own. In fact, I am a child, a joint heir of the king. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of this place today knowing that we're victors and over-conquerors in Jesus. No matter what the sick world does, no matter the tragedies that we read about and watch on the news, God, that our hearts and minds are lifted up to something higher. Help us to be advocates. Help us to be justice seekers. But help us most of all, Lord, to be gospel spreaders because the world needs Jesus more than they need anything else. Father, we pray you'll bless us and use us in, in Christ's holy, mighty name. We ask it. Amen.